Well, good morning, and again, I would like to wish a happy Mother's Day to all of you. So glad you're here. And uh, it's now time for True Confessions by Dan DeRoshi. Um, we at Crossview Church love, uh, in fact, we feel convicted that um, on Sunday mornings when you come that you get a teaching that's directly from the Bible. We systematically go through different books. So like we're in the book of Mark right now, and we kind of go through it. And so when you're on the preaching schedule, it's kind of like you get what's coming next. And so I just saw that I got Mark 6 next, and so I started beginning my normal routine with that. And it takes me about 15 hours to put together what we do here on Sunday morning. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so I need a lot of time. But one of the things we try to do is get to the root of what was the original author's intent when they wrote this. And then you have to go there first before bringing it here. And that takes time. It takes time to go through. And so I was about three quarters of the way in my message preparation. I work ahead. And as I got through this, all of a sudden reality hit. And I realized three quarters of the way in that I'm going to be preaching this message on Mother's Day. And then I realized the message I'm preaching on Mother's Day is about John the Baptist's head being delivered on a platter, which is not your typical Mother's Day message. So I'm coming out confessing now, moms, I'm sorry about the content, though I'm not going to apologize about the word because I believe the Bible, no matter what is preached, will bear fruit in your life, right? But just know topically, I understand that you probably never had a sermon on this topic on Mother's Day and duly noted. All right? Duly noted. <laughs> Reading the Bible is a crazy adventure. If you just dive into it and pick up anywhere, or you read it just to check the box, it can be confusing, it could be boring. But if you really enter in and you slow down and you think, and perhaps you get a good study Bible and you look at what's happening as you're reading this, it takes you on so many different journeys. But the biggest journey it'll take you to is a journey closer to the heart of God. Some of the stories are so heartbreaking and it'll make you weep. Some of the stories are filled with adventure of people going to faraway places. Some stories make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you see the heroic acts of women and men in the Bible and what they're doing for God, standing for what is right. Then there are the crazy stories. They're the obscure stories. They're the, need I say, obscene or sick stories that feel like they belong more in a sleazy tabloid than in God's book. Yet we find them here nonetheless. They are raw, they are vulgar, and they just don't seem to fit what we would think would be in a book about God and the culture of the time, but yet they're there. And the story that stands in front of us this morning is one of those stories. In fact, one Bible scholar said this of this story. It says, the author Mark transports us from our sanitized world of comfort and stability to a time when rulers did as they pleased. He rips us from our homes to place us into a sleazy setting of pulsating music, filthy jokes, sensual dancing, too much alcohol, and too little moral restraint. For the next 16 verses, we must observe the shameful inner court of Herod Antipas. How's that for a Mother's Day sermon context, huh? That's where we're going to go today. 
And we're going to go into a deep dive. And what I want to do today is we're going to go deep into the weeds of this story. I want to share with you what's going on behind the words so you have a deeper understanding of what's happening. And then we're going to come up out of the weeds and I'm going to give us four lessons that we can learn from what we dove into. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, you go three quarters of the way in, you'll see Matthew and then Mark. And then go to chapter 6. I'm calling this a costly comfort. And hopefully at the end of the message you'll see why I'm calling it that. But as we enter into this, I believe God has much to show us. As we go through this story, I think you'll see how sick and twisted it is. But God, through Mark, is telling us something. And that's the root that we need to get at. What is God, through Mark, telling us? And that's what I want us to capture this morning. So let's start with Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard about it. Pause. Break. What is it? It is the seven verses before this where Jesus, in his ministry, gathered his twelve, and now he sent them out to do his good works. He sent them out to teach the gospel about who he is. He sent them out to heal the sick. He sent them out to heal people of their diseases and set people who are uh, possessed by demons free. And they did that. They started going out and all over amazing things started happening. And Herod heard about it. That's the it. And so he heard about this. So it said King Herod, when he heard about it, because Jesus' name had become well known, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. And then here's the key verse of this section. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. That's what he thought was happening. So this Herod ordered the death of John the Baptist that we're going to get into in a second. But I want to share about who this Herod is. So there's a Herod that we hear about in the Christmas story that was so obsessed with his power, felt so threatened when anyone tried to take his power, that when he heard about this Messiah that could be born, that would save the world, that would be King of Kings and Lord of all lords someday, couldn't handle that to the point that he did a genocide to wipe out everybody to protect his power. That was Herod of the Christmas story. This Herod is his son. The Herod we're reading about is his son. That Herod in the Christmas story had four sons. And when he died, he divided up the area of Jerusalem into four sections, gave each of his son a section, and now his sons rule the area that he ruled. He died around 4 BC, transferred his power to the son. So you have Herod the dad in the Christmas story. Then you have Herod Antipas in this story. So when I talk about Herod Antipas, which I will quite a bit today, I'm talking about that son in this story. Antipas followed his father in terms of his obsession with power. He had a quest for power that was out of control. His appetite for huge building projects and spending tons and tons of money and going after other men's wives was destructive. It was self-destructive. The leaders of the Roman Empire didn't trust him. And here's the deal of some more background. 
So during this time, the Jewish people in this area were under the Roman Empire. They were oppressed by the Roman people. So you had the Jewish people trying to live their lives under this uh, Roman Empire oppression. They're being uh, put down by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was always, always insecure during that time. They're always afraid of an uprising. They were afraid that the Jewish people would revolt and try to take back the city of Jerusalem. So they were fearful of that. And so what they did, and they always were fearful of that ever since the time they took over Jerusalem. So what they did is they would hire these Herods. And if you were a Herod, like Herod Antipas or like his dad, you were kind of a broker in between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire. See, their, Rome, their government system was different than ours. So you were kind of this broker between the two and you had to keep both sides happy. You had to keep the Jewish people happy so they wouldn't revolt. And you had to keep the Roman Empire happy or else you'd be out of a job. And they'd cut you off. And Herod Antipas lived in such a crazy way that he couldn't keep either one happy. And so it was very unstable. The Roman Empire was ready to get rid of him. So they did all they could to rein in his influence. So he couldn't expand. He couldn't do much. And so he made up for it by just throwing wild parties. That's how crazy he was. So now fame about Jesus comes into the picture, and this fame is increasing, and there's rumors, and there's even more threat against the Roman Empire because they're wondering, is this guy Jesus going to throw over the Roman Empire? And so then they think, well, it's Elijah who came back from the dead or another great prophet. But then Herod Antipas got really nervous because he killed John the Baptist, and now he's wondering, is this John the Baptist coming back from the dead to take vengeance. That's why in verse 16 it says, John, he was worried because John, the one I beheaded, had been raised. And at this point in the story, the author Mark goes into a flashback to share with us why Herod felt the way he did. He goes into a flashback to share with us why Herod felt the way he did. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is the beginning of the story of, to explain. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, another character we'll talk about in a second, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So let's pause there. Herod of Antipas ended up killing one of the most religiously revered men in all of Israel at the time, which caused a stir. John the Baptist had lots of enemies because he spoke the truth about God, but people were afraid to touch and harm him because they sensed God's hand was on him. Also, they knew if they did anything to him, more often than not, the Jewish people would have revolted at the time. But Herod was crazy. He didn't care. And John and Herod collided. And John confronted him against one particular sin that we know of here, and that's the sin of what he did with his wife and his brother's wife. Herod exiled his wife, banished her from his kingdom, said, you are out of here. And then he took the wife of his brother to the north, his sister-in-law, and it gets even crazier than that because this wife he took from the north, Herodias, 
was also their niece. So his brother married their niece, and now he is taking her from his brother, and he wants to marry her. It's a wild, weird, messy, sick place in Herod's kingdom. And so this, taking your brother, his brother's wife, violated a political treaty that Roman, the Roman Empire set up to keep peace. And so they set this up and said it has to be like this. Herod didn't care. He violated that treaty, had his brother's wife come into his kingdom, had an adulterous relationship with her and married her. But it also violated, more importantly, Jewish law. And John the Baptist cared more about Jewish law than he did about the political system and the political uprising and treaties at the time. So he confronted Herod about this and would speak out because everybody was talking about it. Because it was a political violation, everybody in the whole area was talking about it. So John the Baptist would speak into it and he would talk loudly about how wrong this was. And so Herod had him arrested and locked up in a dungeon near his palace. Let's look at verses 19 to 20. So Herodias held a grunge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to kill John the Baptist. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. This is where it gets wild. When Herod heard him talking about when John would teach him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So there's a lot of shaky ground going on here because I, didn't, I failed to tell you that when Herod sent his first wife out and exiled her, his first wife was the daughter of his powerful rival who's always threatened the kingdom. So the Roman Empire was concerned that now there's a threat going on against their kingdom in Jerusalem. Then, marrying his brother's wife, who ruled to the north of him, he caused a huge amount of instability. So Herod was on shaky ground when the Roman Empire, as the Roman Empire was concerned because of what he did. He needed to keep Rome happy, and he needed to keep the Jewish people happy, and he was failing at both. And because the Roman Empire was always afraid of an uprising, Herod was in a tight position. Although Herodias wanted John the Baptist killed, he couldn't do it. Because not only did he fear losing the support of the Jewish people, because he was in a tight spot, he knew if he killed John the Baptist, everything could topple right over. There was another reason he didn't want to kill John the Baptist. Because it says in here, that he feared, in a way, his spiritual power. John the Baptist was in prison in Herod's dungeon for two full years. And verse 20 tells us that he kept him alive because he was captivated by his teaching. When he brought John the Baptist before his court, he would start teaching. And yes, he didn't like what he was hearing from him because he was telling him, Herod, what you're doing is sinful and wrong. At the same time, it says, and this is so weird, that Herod liked to listen to him. So this guy would come in, tell him what he's doing it wrong, speak to his sin, and yet he still liked to listen. People don't like the truth because it brings conviction. 
But at the same time, there's something that feels so right about it that we want that in our life. We want somebody to draw a line that says, whoa, that's not right. And so Herod had this mix going on. There's a lot of speculation among Bible scholars as to why Mark wrote, he liked to listen to him. I think he saw in John a goodness that he knew he would never be able to attain to. He saw a devotion to God that he longed to experience in his own. However, he was not willing to accept the cost. He kept John around because this man in the dungeon was his only connection to anything good in life. The rest of his life was evil restlessness that did not satisfy. Let's look at Mark 21 to 33. The story keeps going. An opportune time came upon his birthday, Herod's birthday, when he gave a banquet for all his nobles. Now here's the people he has to please. All his nobles, his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. Those are the Jewish people he's trying to make sure he keeps at peace. When Herodias own daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Herodias is looking for an opportune time to get the advantage and this was it. A party like this was perfect because it would be attended by everyone that he had to have influence with, Roman military, Jewish leaders, they're all in one place, and Herod had to please all his guests. Tensions were high in this moment. Now, I got to tell you something about these parties. At first, when you read the Bible and you read this story, it can seem like Herodias sent her daughter named Salome, in to do this elegant dance to please Master Herod. But that's not what's going on here. It's not like one of those kind of parties. It's bad. It's sick. It has to do with things that we would prosecute in a court of law. It was a gross thing that took place. Often these dancers of these parties were prostitutes or concubines, Culturally, at this moment, other women would leave the room and the drugs and the alcohol and the corruption flowed freely. And in the middle of that, at the right moment, Herodias sends in her daughter, Salome. Her daughter is young. She's probably early teens. Because of the relation, Herodias was their niece, now Herod's sister-in-law, this is his stepdaughter plus blood relative. The gesture was sick and embarrassing, even to our worldly standards. I don't pretend to know all the immorality that's going around in our world, but what I can tell you what happened in this party would easily be prosecuted in our court of law, and we would say that it was wrong. He doesn't go into the details here. Mark doesn't lay out the details here. You know why? Because he gave enough that his original readers would see this and they go, got it, know exactly what happened. 
They would know the horror that took place. And it's far too gross for me to share in details on a Sunday morning. It'd be inappropriate, but let me tell you, it was bad. It was really, really bad. And here's what I want you to grab from this. It was in that culture, in that sick setting, in that place where sins that we would be ashamed and embarrassed about and prosecute in a court of law, that they accepted and upheld. It was in that kind of world that Jesus Christ entered into. And it was in that kind of culture, in that kind of place, where not only did Jesus enter into, but he established the church of Jesus Christ, and it flourished. He declared the gospel about what he was about and what he was to do, and it took off like wildfire in that cultural context. So when you get worried about the temperature and what's happening in the culture of the United States of America and around the world, do not fear because there's nothing that can stop the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it was in this culture, this sick, depraved culture that Jesus broke into and said, this is the moment. This is the time. And the church was established and it flourished and it brought the peace and the love and the purity and the truth and the rightness of who God is in a dark, dark, dark place. The church was born in the darkness of the most horrible sin you could think of. Sir Herodias knew that in a sick way Antipas would like what happened. She knew his reaction would be pleasing, so it caused Antipas to blurt out I will give you over half my kingdom. And it was hyperbole, it was exaggeration. He didn't mean to have that happen truthfully. However, now the tensions were high because noble men from Jerusalem were in the room and Roman rulers were in the room and they all knew this guy was crazy and he just said this. So what's going to happen? Herod was stuck in a corner and he could do nothing except honor his word because he knew he'd be thrown out on the street otherwise. So he'll give her anything she asks. Look at verse 24 to 28. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed, Herod was deeply distressed. Do you feel that tension going on in his soul? Deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately set for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. Verse 26 describes how Herod Antipas felt deeply distressed because he let his own sinful intentions get the best of him. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but as one commentator says, Herod was sorry that his drunken tongue had landed him in such an awkward situation, but he was not sorry enough to do what was right. He was not sorry about his sin. With the eyes of his guests on him, with the eyes of Herodias in his mind, 
With the eyes of Salome who danced in his face, he forgot about the eyes of God. He forgot that there's one who looks over and sees every aspect of our life who is holy and just. Have you ever been caught up in a situation or a circumstance in life and you get so caught up into the details and the feelings and the emotions and everything that's going on with it that you forget that God is present? I know that happens to me a lot. You forget that the eyes of God see all, that everything we do, we live our lives before the eyes of God. And that's where Herod was. Bound by his pride, he immediately sent for the executioner. And the original language in verse 28 is so grotesque, it's too inappropriate for me to say on a Sunday morning. And then look what happened in verse 29. When the, John's disciples heard about it, those that followed John the Baptist, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. And Mark, who wrote this, purposely made this to sound familiar to the death and burial of Jesus Christ to prove a point that John the Baptist was a faithful witness, that he suffered persecution and hostility, that he was imprisoned and put to death, and he died much like his precious Savior died. He died bringing glory to his Savior. He died bringing glory to Jesus. May that be said of all of us. So now I want to pause the text and look at four lessons we can learn from this story. Four lessons that we can pull from what we just saw. First of all, number one, we can learn about the poison of holding a grudge. The poison of holding a grudge. Herodias held on to this grudge against John the Baptist because he told her what she was doing was wrong. And that grudge ran deep. Few things will ruin your spiritual life like holding a grudge will. If you have a grudge, if you have been wrong, I encourage you, forgive that person and set yourself free. Forgiveness sets you free. Bitterness and unforgiveness does nothing to the offending party. Forgive that person and set yourself free. If you hang on to the grudge, the bitterness will bloom and take you to a place that you will one day regret. Number two, we learn about seeking human approval above God's approval and what a trap that is. We see that in Herod. Herod forgot about the all-seeing eye of God and was more worried about what those in front of him thought of him. He was more concerned about what others thought than he was what God thought. We usually make very poor decisions when we forget that we live before God alone. When we live knowing all of our lives are before God, when we, even when we blow it, it will lead us to conviction, that will lead us to repentance, that will lead us to forgiveness, that will lead us to doing the right thing. Number three, we learn in this story the depth and the seriousness of sin. This whole story shows how serious sin is and how life can get out of control if we bow to it and just normalize it. Or if we just rationalize it and say, well, that's just how it is. Sin is like a wildfire that just keeps consuming more and more of people's lives, more and more of our culture. 
and we should fight against it with all we have. This story should make us ask God to search our hearts, and if there's anything offensive in us, repent and ask for forgiveness. Sin should drive us to prayer, saying, God, help me. Help me to be more like you. Finally, number four, through this story, we see the cost of following Jesus, and we see this in John the Baptist. John the Baptist did what was right. He called out what needed to be called out. He stood what he knew was to be true, and he suffered for it. He denied himself. He denied his comfort. He denied his safety to stand for what was right. Check this out. Only 36% of the church-going evangelical Christians believe that following Jesus means you must deny yourself and it will cost you something. Only 36% believe that following Jesus means it will cost you something. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost when you step off the throne of your life and you put him on the throne of your life and you say, I'm done living the way I want to. I'm going to live the way you want me to. That's costly. That means you don't get to do everything you want to do. And doing that, taking on that cost, getting yourself off the throne of your life and putting Jesus there and yielding and saying, I'm going to follow him, not my own way, that's not reserved for just the hyper-spiritual. That's not reserved for, oh, the super-Christian. That is basic Christianity. That is basic following Jesus. If it doesn't cost you something, it's not true love. Ask any mom if that's true. The mark of a mother's love is sacrifice for those that she loves. The mark of a mom is a huge sacrifice of self-denial. How much more should it be towards us and our Savior of the world who paid the penalty of our sin? So how do we live in light of all this? What do we do? I believe if Mark was here with us today, he would say my main point in this whole section is there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus, but... There's also a comfort that can help us deal with the cost. This is a costly comfort that we see in these verses. We talked about how Mark likes to, it's almost like he has ADD. He likes to sandwich things. He starts with story A, inserts story B, and goes back to story A. And we see that right here. If you look in verses 7 to 14 of chapter 6, or I'm sorry, 7 to 13, he starts with commissioning the 12 apostles to go do Jesus' works. Then he comes in and shares this weird story about John the Baptist. And then when you go back to verse 30, it says the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported all that happened. It's A-B-A. He, he interrupts this story to tell the weird story about John the Baptist. And the reason is he wants to illustrate there's a cost to following Jesus. When Jesus sent out the apostles, he hinted at the fact that this is going to be costly. It's going to cost you something. And he said, ah, and to prove that point, let me tell you the story about John the Baptist. And then he writes the story about John the Baptist, and he goes back to the apostles. So if he was here, he would say, this whole thing is about the cost of following Jesus. And he would assume and sense that when his original hearers heard this story he wrote, they would say, how can we bear this cost? 
How can we be like John the Baptist? How does that happen? And with that question, he concludes with 30 and 32. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that he had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. There's a comfort that comes when you take the cost, but you lean into and being alone with your Savior, Jesus. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat, speaking of the apostles. Look at what they did in verse 32. So they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place. They went away to be with their Savior. See, there's a comfort that comes that no matter what we face in this life, pain, hardship, sacrifice, self-denial, that we can face that cost when we are comforted in our souls by the power and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the power source that pushes us forward to accept the cost. What motivates us to stand in crazy times of our life and world is when we habitually go away and be with Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, I want to invite you to do something today if you haven't already. And I want you to start going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter. If you haven't, now's the time. Start reading Mark chapter 1. It doesn't matter. Don't try to sync up with what's happening Sunday morning. Just start reading Mark chapter 1. And when you get all the way done, go back and start reading it again. Once a day, a chapter of Mark a day. But I want to encourage you to do something I've been doing lately that's been so, so helpful. When you read about Jesus and Mark or any other gospel, I want you to take time to be with Jesus in the passage. Take time to see what's going on. First, pray and ask God to help you encounter Jesus in this time of reading. Then read what's there. And then I want you to daydream about what Jesus was doing. Place yourself there. Don't change the story. Don't put yourself there and, well, here's what I would do. And I think in my story, Jesus does that. No, no. Let the word of God be the word of God and teach us what's there. But put yourself in there and observe. What's Jesus doing? Why did he say it like that? What, how would that make me feel? What is he doing? Daydream about what's happening. Waste time with Jesus when you're reading the word. Because isn't that what we do with our family and our friends? We get together and we waste time together. And in doing so, we feel closer to one another. When you read the Bible that way and you spend time daydreaming about what Jesus is doing and thinking about it, you're going to find that all of a sudden you feel like you've spent time with Jesus. You feel like you understand what's going on. And when you do that, it will bring a comfort to your soul that will empower you for the cost. It's a costly comfort that's anchored in who our Savior is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the full picture of what life is really all about. Not just life that we experience in the here and now, but the life to come. And God, I ask that you would help us to know you through the text of Scripture. 
that you would comfort our hearts with your spirit and your word that would strengthen our inner selves that we could stand in the worlds that you've called us to the worlds of work the worlds of family the worlds of neighborhood the worlds of friendships that we would be your ambassadors carrying out your love and your power and your story to those in our lives that so desperately need it. So Lord, anchor ourselves in you that there would be a comfort that would come that would empower us to do what's right. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.